We have a lot of good stuff going on. It's going to be a great morning as we, uh, as always, we are going to study God's Word together and we're also going to get to hear a God story in a little while, a report of what God is doing in the world that we at, here at Faith Church get to be part of. So, and along the way, while we do those things, study God's Word and hear a God report, uh, we're going to meet some, uh, f- some familiar faces and some new faces as well. So um, as I introduce our first guest, I want to just remind you of this, that Faith Church, this local church, is, uh, is a part of a greater association of churches across the country called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And our region, our district that we are part of here, uh, consists of uh, the, free, the FCA churches in Oregon and in Western Washington. And we recently uh, had an exciting transition of leadership in our district. Uh, Many of you remember or know Bruce Martin, our former district leader who went into retirement and is enjoying a new season of grandkids and his boat and the ducks. Yeah. Uh, and, um, And now our district has gone through this leadership transition and we have a new district leader. So would you join me in welcoming up here Rob Chadwick and his wife Beth. Hello. Come on up, friend. I will come up. My, our tech team tried to already get this guy thinking ducks. I mean, thinking beavers. I mean, oh, man, I messed that up, too. Here, slide over. Michael Schilling's back there trying to rally support for the beavers when I want to get you on track with the ducks. So, you know, I'm sure some of these people out here have something to say about that, too. I said, we, Beth and I both grew up in Michigan. See, see, then they're, careful. <laughs> Sports, a dangerous topic. <laughs> yeah. uh, in a few minutes, Rob is going to be opening God's Word with us, and so we're looking forward to that. But before he does that, I wanted to make sure that me, our church family, gets to know these two a little bit as well. And so I know um, your uh, sermon title kind of is, uh, you're going to be in, taking us to Acts and your sermon title is kind of a question that you're weaving. Is that, what's that theme question? Yeah, uh, the day that changed everything. And so this idea that we have times in our lives where something happened that changed everything. And I, I remember growing up with my friends in high school, we'd always measure our memories by how long we would remember them. So, oh, this would be a six-month memory, a one-year memory. Every once in a while, you have a lifelong memory. Something happens, you go, I'll never forget it. And so that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. yeah, so speaking of some of those life-changing moments, we want to hear some of the life-changing moments for you two that'll tell us a little bit about yourselves. Yeah. So, so here we are. This is, uh, <laughs> this, I was a fat baby. <laughs> this is me uh, at April 1st, 1969. I was over 10 pounds. Uh, Dave and Mary Hedino, my brother Steve, he was over 11 pounds. He was a big boy too. <laughs> But April 1st was a big thing for me and, uh, and being born on April 1st because everybody remembered my birthday because it's April 1st. <laughs> and uh, so that was, that was huge. They and remember so, it, but do they, did you get teased about April 1st? All the time. So yeah. Beth and I actually went to school since seventh grade together. And I remember she sent me a card when I thought she was pretty cute and I didn't even think she knew who I was <laughs> on April 1st just because everybody in my class knew my birthday was April nice. 1st. So. 
See, so as much trouble as we, we give April 1st, April 1st is significant to our family too. April 1st, 2016 is when we uh, finalized adoption of our two youngest and became a family of six. Wow. So we don't care what you think about April 1st. April 1st is cool. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's cool. Yeah, so um, maybe Beth. This is my wife, Beth, here, by the way. And uh, we've been married. I so. more than... Oh, I meant to give you this, Beth. Sorry. Yeah, here we go. Uh, 34 there years go. we've been married. And so I asked Beth to marry me on Monarch Pass in Colorado. And that was really a day that changed everything for us. A lot of years of ministry, 18 years of youth ministry. I was talking to your youth pastor, Jake, I think, who said, 18 years, I can't believe it. <laughs> now, yeah, we, we loved it too. So. You know, the day that changed everything was because of For you moms out there, um, it is a huge deal, our family. We have a son, Wesley, who lives in Salmon Creek, just 20 minutes, 30 minutes away, with our lovely granddaughter and our, our daughter-in-law, who many people think that's my daughter, and I just, I'm so pleased with her. She's uh, lovely. So, and they're then just 20 minutes away from where you are now. Yeah. yeah. Talk about God doing a work, putting us right near our grandchild that's and fun. our kids. So. We have a middle child who's getting married actually Saturday before Easter. Yeah, coming at up. At Cannon Beach. Nice. Yeah, it's wonderful. So let me just reiterate that. <laughs> on Cannon Beach. Yeah. yeah end of March. <laughs> she always wanted to get married on the beach. And after she made the decision of when it was going to happen, we said, uh, you ever been on the Oregon coast in March? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're all about it. And then, um, and so her fiance, Dakota, you see in the picture, and then our, our youngest, uh, Rachel. And ah, the first song, I was moved to tears because she woke, you know, talk about, you, you pray for your children, you pray for your nieces and nephews, you pray for, you pray that the next generation will make it safely home to heaven. Mm -hmm. And um, she just had a major transformation. And that song mm -hmm. was a song at her lowest. Mm -hmm. This is when you're at your lowest, is when we finally go, oh yeah. She goes, Mom, I grew up in a, I was a pastor's kid. I know all of this stuff, mm -hmm. but it's all here. And just this past January, basically, God used that song, um, The Lion of Judah, oh, I'm wow. fighting your battles. She was fighting, literally fighting something at the edge of her bed that was shaking and not letting her sleep. Mm. She was so in a dark, dark place. Mm. And we had been praying over her and praying for her. She was very real with us. But God used that song for her. And, uh, oh, it's just, it, I'm overwhelmed. I don't cry because I'm sad. I cry because I'm so excited. Yeah. She has finally realized that God fights for you. Right on. Yeah. Very so cool. cool. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Here I go again. <laughs> no worries. It's awesome. That's yeah. life right there. Totally. And then I think you have one more family slide. Who's this? Uh, yeah. Who's this? This is, and she'll say, my name is Ivia Beth Chawek. And so she's my namesake. This is our Olivia Beth. She's 18 months old and just. Um, the joy of our life right now. So, okay. it's cool. and and if you notice, she's in uh, Grinch pajamas and has two lightsabers. Yeah. So, ooh, two lightsabers. Yeah. Two lightsabers. Yeah. She's so, not messing around. No. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, if you ever want to see pictures, we're just like any grandparents. We've got <laughs> pictures of her all the time on our screensavers. It's really pathetic and really great <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so. so, before you arrived, you're living in Washington about an hour and a half away from us. You right. said you drove about an hour and a half this morning. Before this new adventure, you were pastoring a church in Colorado for 16, 17 years? 17 years. 17 yeah. years. Mm -hmm. And then God, speaking of life-changing moments, 
Um, God called you both to come and serve in ministry out here in the Pacific Northwest and move. And so what's that life-changing moment been, been like for you, Beth? It's singing the song we just sang again. The, the worship was so right on this morning mm. from my heart. It was mm. just, God, what? I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it, it's Amy's parents going, what? You want us to move out of California? And mm. God knows what, what he's doing. And we just need to trust and obey. Mm. And it's, it's such a traveling, uh, the journey with the Lord and with Rob has been, he tells us where to go and we, we step in obedience and faith and we trust. And mm. And right now, I'm still kind of going, what are you doing? <laughs> what is this all about? <laughs> yeah. We, uh, so the kind of the, the backstory is we used to live out here in Oregon. I was uh, on staff at Central Bible Church and Grace Community Church in Gresham, Oregon. Beth and I were, were together in that. And then we went to Colorado, and we're at Bethany Evangelical Free Church in Littleton, Colorado. We moved there the year of the Columbine shooting. Mm -hmm. And so we had students at Columbine, and, and that was a whole story in and of itself. But then seven, actually 18 years almost now, we took three families two hours south. So imagine three families from your church or four families together all go, hey, we're going to move two hours away and reestablish ourselves in a new community. And we started Table Mountain Church, and we just started to think these last couple of years, maybe we're just here forever. We're going to be here till the end of our lives. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then out of the blue, we got tapped twice. So, like, one guy, Bruce Redman, in the Southeast District, he's a church planning director down there for the Free Church, and he called us and said, I think you ought to put your name in for this position. And then our district superintendent, uh, Barry Vedker, in the Rocky Mountain District in Colorado, called us and said, I think the next day, you ought to put your name in for this. I think you would be, you and Beth would be a good fit. And so I remember we kind of hugged each other and, and said, whatever happens, let's just Let's see what happens. When God calls your name twice, you need to pay attention. Right on. Yep. Well, we are glad for your obedience to God's call and excited to have you both and excited to get to know you more and more. And I know uh, one of the things you're going to do here for us, Rob, is uh, I, I try to keep us reminded that we are part of an association of churches so that we can be part of something bigger than, than just us. And so give us the quick you know, overview of EFCA National and our, and our Pacific West, uh, Northwest District. So if you don't know, uh, 40 churches, it's really western Washington and Oregon, and technically includes uh, Alaska. And so I'm already talking to some people about seeing if we can't get some things going up there. Mm -hmm. But there's 40 churches in two camps, if you don't know this. Um, Elam, up near Tacoma, is the oldest Scandinavian-Norwegian free church in the nation. Mm -hmm. 140 years they're celebrating this year. And that was the very first church we went up and spoke up there a few months ago and got to meet that congregation. There's six regions and six pastors that oversee those regions. So there's ones up in Washington, there's three, there's actually four in Washington, and then there's two down in Oregon. And so Derek is part of the, the North Oregon region. We were just yeah. together last Thursday. Yeah, every and, uh, month I get to go hang out with brothers and, and update each other and pray yeah. for each other. Yeah, and Derek, uh, it, it told me, I didn't realize uh, um, that uh, uh, chicken, uh, God's chicken. Uh, Chick-fil-A is the Lord's <laughs> chicken, uh, so especially learned, according to Jake, <laughs> especially <laughs> according to Pastor Jake. God's chicken, yeah. yeah. Uh, four district staff. Uh, Rick Parker, right here. If you guys don't know Rick, Rick is just an amazing part of our staff, and he does uh, we does the uh, um, the uh, the ordination and licensing, and also Gateway. It's a way that we raise up people that maybe they can't go to a seminary or college, or they have, but they just don't understand the free church ethos. And so Rick plays a part in that. And then Rick just is kind of he's a coach. 
He's all over the district, and before I came, him and Danny oversaw the district. Scott Lamb is uh, really a, uh, our church planning guy, and then Kathy Noel does the, uh, she does the admin stuff, so really helping us behind the scenes. And really, honestly, Beth is on staff. She's been at every church so far that I've been in on Sundays. That may not always happen, but we just we started to think what it is we wanted in a district at, when we were there, and we wanted... Um, to see a couple that really, as pastors, we understood them, they understood us. So, And then 500 miles from Canada to California, 1,600 congregations in, in the EFC. There's actually more than that across the nation. There's 17 districts, so there's 17 people like me. So once a month, we get on a Zoom call, and then we meet periodically face-to-face throughout the year talking about best practices. What are things that are working, that are, that are healthy, that are good for our districts. And then this last one here, if you don't know this, the Free Church began as a mission organization, not as a, as a church association. It was a bunch of little independent free churches all over the United States going, hey, if we partner together, we could probably be more effective. And now we have 600 plus missionaries in 50 plus countries around the world. Right on. And that's what we love about our partnership. We love that our, our local church here in Dallas, Oregon gets to partner with uh, this organization, association, to be bigger than ourselves, to band together and proclaim Jesus and help us be more gospel fruitful here and for to be able to be partnered with so many great uh, missionaries and organizations that take the, the name of Jesus near and far. So yeah. we're thankful for that partnership. Yep. Brother, uh, open God's word for us and encourage us with something that God's been working in you about and, 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 and spur us along in following Jesus. We'd love to have your help with that. Yeah, thanks, guys. This is a little more of a personal picture here for you. This is uh, now, so uh, we still have our home in Colorado. We're just, it, it was a terrible time to sell, and we're using it as an Airbnb. And we have a rental that came up. It was a couple in a church that saw our video. It said, hey, we'd like to bless you with us. They're giving us a great rent. And this is going out to our garage on the right, district car on the left. You can see just a glimpse of it. But this is uh, the map of the district, and it, brings, it makes it a little more personal. That Beth and I, when we see this, we think of you as people, as individuals, as congregations. We pray for you. My wife is a detailed person, so she took this map and put it in a picture, and then we can see where all the churches and the camps are. And then there's even information on the right, a little bit more about who's on staff at the churches as we get to know them. And so that, that kind of puts it in another perspective. You have people praying for you outside of this church that love you and want to see you uh, be a gospel light in this community. Yeah, that's right. It'll be best church. Yeah, it's really with live feed now. You could say stuff and, and go, oh, that's right. Other people are watching. <laughs> so what are some seismic shifts? And this is a little bit of feedback right now. What are some seismic shifts in the Old and New Testament? I talked about those lifelong memories, but things in the Bible that everything changed in that moment. What are some things you might say from Old and New Testament? Things that are big, major shifts. Resur- who said, yeah, resurrection. Yeah, resurrection. Paul says, without the resurrection, we're, we're essentially be laughed at if Jesus never rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15. So what, say that again? Yeah, right, okay. Forgiveness of sins. That's right, yeah. And so with, the, with maybe the death of Christ and then the resurrection, that, that was eliminated. Yeah. Anything else? 
Salvation, yeah. Yeah, through all this. What else? The fall. Yeah, going all the way back, the garden, right? My daughter, Rachel, what Beth just talked about, she got up one night, she couldn't sleep, so she decided out of all the books that she couldn't sleep, she read through the book of Revelation. <laughs> she called me the next day and says, Dad, this book is crazy. I don't know what's going on here. And I go, Rachel, the best way to think about it is it's all about the garden. We started in the garden, we left the garden, and we're just trying to get back to the garden. And so the end of the book of Revelation, remember heaven and earth come together and in the presence of God again. And she goes, oh, that's so great. I love it. And um, we'll really simplify. What else? Any other things? The flood, yeah. Yep. Holy Spirit. Yeah, Pentecost. So I'll throw this out. You did really great, by the way. Give yourselves a pat on the back. Creation fall is, is a major shift. When, when we were in our church, our last church, Tabemont Church, we would go to Sicily and we, would, we worked with refugees coming up from Africa. And we always did this, their story, our story, God's story. What's your story? And then we would, they would usually say, well, what's your story? And then we'd eventually go, can I just quickly share with you God's story? You always start in the garden. Creation, fall. Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter what? Genesis 12. Yeah, easy number to remember. When God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and through you I will bless who? Everybody. The whole world. It's messianic. Through Abraham, the world will be blessed. Birth of Jesus. Without the incarnation, you don't have his life, his teaching, the, the miracles, the death, the resurrection. I have death, resurrection. We already said that. Pentecost was a good one. And then there's one that nobody ever says. Acts chapter 9, major shift in the New Testament. Acts chapter 9 is the day that changed everything. Let me go ahead and just run this through real quickly. I'll give you a backdrop. And then if you've got your Bibles, or if you have Bibles in your chairs, Acts chapter 26, you can put your finger in there, and we're going to go there in just a second. But Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And I put down there 7 through 9. Why? Well, what happened in chapter 7, two chapters before, somebody dies, first martyr, Stephen, right? And who's standing there holding everybody's coats? Yeah, Saul. And by the way, Saul, Paul, Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Roman name. So nothing major there. As he reached the Gentiles, he began to be known as Paul. Chapter 7, he's holding the coats. Some people think, well, he's too young, so he's holding the coats. There's a good argument that Paul was overseeing the stoning. He was the guy in charge. And then it says right away in the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, that Paul agreed or supported the killing of Christians. And then Acts chapter 9, it says in verse 3, as he neared Damascus... We know the story, many of us, that Saul is going down this road to Damascus, and all of a sudden on this journey, this light from heaven flashed around him, and he has this encounter with Jesus that changed everything. Acts chapter 25 through 26, this is a little bit of background, and then I want to walk this passage through with you. 25 years later, so now Paul is looking backwards on his life and most of his ministry sharing the gospel. 25 years later, Paul is before Governor Festus, King Agrippa, and Bernice. King Agrippa, by the way, is the last in the line of the Herods. He's one of the Herods. There's lots of Herods. <laughs> and then his sister Bernice 
Another interesting story, Bernice ended up having an affair with Titus, who was the commander who overthrew Jerusalem. And later she moved to Rome. It's, it's just a side note in all this. She essentially was a traitor. She helped the Romans overthrow the Jews in Jerusalem. And they're all sitting there. So Paul is going to stand. He's going to give his defense. He's at Caesarea Maritima, which is out by the coast. It's, if you think of Jerusalem, it's west and out on the Mediterranean coast. You can go there to this day and stand on the foundations of where they think Paul gave his defense. He's chained to a guard. He says, I am in chains when he gives his defense. And I want you to see this. This story is told three times in the book of Acts. And, and by the way, too, Paul, when he is, is speaking in other books, he defers or he refers back to the story over and over and over again. It was the day that changed everything. He tells a story, and Luke does, the one who wrote the book in chapter 9, and in chapter 22, and then in chapter 26, the one we're going to look at briefly. So what I want to do, out of respect for the Word of God, and also out of respect for the Apostle Paul, I'd like us to stand on our feet right now, and I want to read these verses to you. If everybody could stand on your feet. And one of the things I want you to imagine is Paul was before King Agrippa. He's in chains. His accusers, which are religious leaders from Jerusalem, are probably standing right next to him. And he's now addressing King Agrippa, who is a, a Jewish man, and he's appealing to him, and essentially he's giving them, these people, the gospel. So Paul says, on one of these journeys... I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, Jesus replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. In me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is God's word. You can have a seat. I want to walk you through this because I don't want you to miss some of these details. The, the, the section begins with Paul saying, on one of these journeys. The key here is that Paul is doing this over and over again. And sometimes it's easy for us to go, oh, that evil man going after Christians. But Paul, in his mind, was protecting the Jewish faith. He thought that these Jews who had now become Christians, who are meeting in synagogues all over the world, are destroying the Jewish faith. And Paul's goal is to destroy this sect. That says he's going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Don't miss this either. It is the religious elite. It is, 
in their minds, the most godly people, the ones who led Israel, who led the Jews at the temple, that they're the ones that are giving permission to Paul to do this. And we know from other writings that the Romans gave permission to the Jews to actually go outside of their territory if people had violated Jewish law. They could go out and they could arrest them and they could bring them back to Jerusalem. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul's a man on a mission. Let me show you how much of a mission he's on. Damascus, which is basically northeast of Jerusalem, 100, catch this, <laughs> 195 miles. And let me remind you, no buses, no cars, no airplanes, didn't ride a horse. This guy with his crew are walking 195 miles. That's how intent they are. Reminds me of the old proclaimer, the Scottish band, the, the, I, I will walk 500 miles, and I will walk another 500 miles. Yeah, this guy, he, he was going. And so I ask you this question, have you ever walked 195 miles for something you believed in? This, this is Paul. He believes in what he's doing. And he says, about noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. Why noon? When is the sun brightest in the daytime? It's about noon, right? So what Paul is saying in this is he wants, you to, he wants the listeners to understand. It was, it, was, it was a bright time of the day in the Middle East, a hot, bright sun. But in the midst of that, he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. And I, I'll ask this, who shines brighter than the sun? Jesus does the right answer. And that word blazing is not, it's not a flash, it's, it's just all the time. The sun is blazing around him and his companions. And we learn from this passage that this story, we learn that the, the men that were with Paul actually saw something. And it says we all fell to the ground. And I, as I read this over and over again, it reminds me, in it, and I recognize that in many ways our Christian life is a journey to our knees and then back on our feet again. And my fears is that a lot of us who have said we've made Jesus Lord of our lives, we never figured out how to start on our knees. When Jesus is Lord of our lives, he's Lord of everything. He's Lord of our marriage, our finances, our words, our future, our emotions. Jesus is Lord. And you think of this moment that it took this to get Paul on his knees. That the greatest prayer any Christian can pray is the same prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden before he was killed. Not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. Beth and I are learning this in this process. God, what do you want for us? C.S. Lewis says this, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right, have it your way. But really, the Bible, what it says is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's all inclusive. There is a day in the future when every knee will bow before Jesus. And then Paul says, I heard a voice say to me in Aramaic. Why do you think Aramaic? Why Aramaic? Yes, so other people can understand, but I want to say this specifically. This is Paul's heart. Have you ever heard the term heart language? 
I was in Ecuador last fall with a buddy of mine. He came to Christ, and he leads a Bible school now in Ecuador. And I'm with Ignacio, and we're in this circle with all these, these different tribes from the jungle who are attending the school. And they start singing this song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And it's in English. And then the guy who's playing the guitar, he would point at a group, and they would start to sing in their tribal language. And it went from like it was okay to all of a sudden like four people, and they're singing louder than anybody. And then he'd point at the next one, and then at the next one, and then at the next one. There was four or five languages represented, and they're all singing the song in their heart language. This is why I love what Eric and Judith Adine have done. My wife and I, out of all of our investments, retirement investments, and things that we've done over the years, the best investment ever was we started right when Eric and Judith went to Papua New Guinea to the Mahumanda tribe. By the way, Dave and Mary Adine, We've been to their house in San Jose. When Dave was working for IBM, he took us through this massive building that's not even standing anymore. Lots of great memories. Dave, last time he, he, we've seen each other, it was at Beth and my wedding. Or Eric, maybe Eric's wedding. That's right. I think it was Eric's wedding up in Canada. Yep. Best investment ever, and why? Because Eric started with Judith. They started with the Mahumanda tribe, and they started teaching them the Word of God, and they started with creation, went all the way through, and in the midst of that, they're learning their language, and we're following this all along, and then they start to write Scripture, and then they're checking it. It's just this constant effort to make sure they got it right, and then eventually, which is one of the things you're celebrating today, there is a Bible in the heart language of the Mahumanda people, and you had a part in that. Better than any investment you've ever made. That one has eternal value. I, I love that. So Jesus speaks to Saul in his heart language, Aramaic. Why do you persecute me? Jesus is saying, you're persecuting me. And, and, and does Paul know who's talking to him at this point? He, we know from, yeah, this next verse. He doesn't know. And Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. These, these long 195-mile walks, you're going the wrong direction and you're pushing against God is really what he's saying. And Paul says this, then I asked, who are you, Lord? He didn't know. He did not know. John 10, 27, Jesus said this, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus' sheep recognize Jesus' voice. It's a really good moment to pause and go, Do, if Jesus spoke, if he directed me, would I recognize his voice? Or would it just be one of the noises in my life that I hear? And Jesus responds. And this is when I say the moment that changed everything. This whole story is a moment that changed Paul's life. But I would argue that this verse right here, this is it. This is the moment. If you could pinpoint it to this, this is it. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. <laughs> Paul thought he was trying to destroy those who follow Jesus, and now Jesus from heaven is saying, you're persecuting me by doing what you're doing. Just everything had to change in that moment. I, you know, and we'll say this in just a second, but it took Paul many years to figure out what this meant. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Growing up at my elementary school, I, I, I was kind of this punk kid who 
would kind of tease the older upperclassmen, and I'd kind of edge them on, because I always knew my brother Steve, who was two years older than me, he was the biggest guy on campus. So I would kind of mess with them, and then eventually I'd get surrounded by these upperclassmen, you know, fifth and sixth graders, and all I had to do was say, Steve! And sometimes I could hear them behind me coming, and everybody would just kind of part ways for my brother. So my brother Steve always stood next to me. I always knew he was there until eventually he went on to middle school and then I really got in trouble. That's Jesus. He stands next to us. When we, when we come after Jesus' people, do you get that? We come after Jesus. Tay Mountain Church, we, had a, we took this really seriously. In our partnership covenant, we actually had things like we said no gossip, and then we put in our partnership covenant, we define it. Gossip, it, it, gossip is something that's not necessary, not true, not kind. And it has to be all three of those. So if you go, is it gossip? You go, it might be true, but it's not necessary. It's gossip. It, it might be kind, but it's not necessary. It's gossip. And we took this, we just, whatever, you use your words very carefully. Because Jesus is, what he's saying is, if you come after my people, you come after me. And, and sometimes we think of this as the world coming after the church, which is really true. But sometimes it's in the church. We don't even realize it. We just, a rolling of the eyes or whatever. And, we, and what we're doing is we're attacking Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, by this you know all men, all men will know that you are my disciples if you, What? Love one another. Not if you wear the right shirt, you raise your hands and worship, whatever. But Jesus says, by your love for one another, the world's going to know that you're one of mine. And then Jesus says to Paul, and this is, it's military-like, right? It's get up on your feet, stand up. It's a command. It's an about face. Our daughter Sarah was a combat medic in the army. We went to her basic training graduation in Oklahoma. We had a 24-hour pass where we could spend time with her, and then she had to go back and go to her next bit of training. And we got to these bays, and the sergeant, drill sergeants, were talking to them. And all of a sudden, this one young man comes in late, and he comes running in, and his name was Jackson. And the drill sergeant, we're all the parents, we're all watching this whole thing, and Jackson comes in. And the guy goes, well, where are you at? He goes, well, I was late, and I didn't, you know, and all this. And he goes, all right. So then what did he, what does he do? He has Jackson stand there, and he has all two, three hundred of these cadets. They all get down, and they have to do push-ups while they're saying, thank you, Jackson. Thank you, Jackson. <laughs> when the drill sergeant tells you to do something, you do it. Man, I felt bad for Jackson. Jesus says, I have appeared to you. This is the commission to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people. That happened many, many times. From the Gentiles, I am sending you to them. I underline that word servant because the, the literal translation of this is under rower. It's kind of lost its meaning. In a rowboat, you know, it might be like, uh, the, like the movie Men in the Boat, I think is whatever, the, the, the rowing crew that went to the Olympics. The idea, though, is you're underneath in the boat and you're a servant or a slave and you're on, on an oar and all you see is the person in front of you and then there's an over rower who stood in the front and just said, row. And when the person said row, you just started paddling. Just look at the person in front of you. 
Paul went from being the man in charge to being an under rower with Jesus calling out the commands. That's really what Paul's saying. I'm no longer in charge. Jesus is Lord of my life. When Jesus says I need to go, when I need to speak, when I need to keep my mouth shut, I'm going to do exactly what he asked me to do. And then there's this five-fold kind of gospel presentation. It's really interesting in verse 18, just quickly, to open their eyes. If you notice in the story that Paul was blinded, Paul had to be blinded in order for him to be able to see. You get the irony of this whole thing? Paul had to have scales on his eyes, and he was like that for three days, and then your memory goes to, he goes, and he meets Ananias, and, and God says, go and meet Paul, Saul of Tarsus, and Ananias says, there's no way, that guy's killing us, and God says, do it anyways. The side note in that is if Ananias wasn't obedient to God, Paul had to be blinded in order to see, and then to turn them from darkness to light. Do we really believe that those who don't know Jesus are walking in darkness? Hard to believe that with all the self-help books, right? I mean, everybody can, they can figure it out, Google, we can Google it. But no, people that don't know Jesus are in darkness. And then from the power of Satan of God to God. The Bible's clear that, the, that Satan, our enemy, we need to be alert. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The Bible's clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all inclusive. And then this final thing, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the rest of the story. Paul has his life-altering encounter. And it says in, these, in, in the next part in chapter 9, Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could do nothing, so they led him by hand into Ma- to Dam- to Ma- Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is what I was alluding to. It so radically changed Saul, Paul. So radically changed him. Couldn't eat. And then we know from Galatians chapter 1 that it took three years. We forget this. We sometimes imagine that what Saul did, he changed his name to Paul. He got in a boat, started doing his mission journeys. But no, he actually went into Arabia and he went... Uh, to Damascus, and then after three years, he went back to Jerusalem. It took him three years to figure this out. And then what did he do when he got to Jerusalem? He went to Peter, Cephas. He wanted to go to kind of the leader of the, of the, the apostles. He talked to Peter. And then he says, I saw no one else except James, the brother of Jesus. That's another great story, right? James, who thought that Jesus had lost his mind, later became a leader in the church, and Paul goes to the brother of Jesus, go, is this thing for real? He could actually ask Jesus' brother. It was life-altering. And then it was, there's was radical obedience. The very next part in, in, in chapter 26, he says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And then this is, this is it right here. <laughs> it just, like, it's, I, this is really hard to comprehend, but one of the reasons we're sitting in this room this morning you're sitting here this morning because this guy, Paul, encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was obedient, and then he moved into a worldwide mission movement. We're here in many ways because of Paul. 
He said, first in Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, and then to the Gentiles. The book of Acts has this, this outline, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It actually is the outline of the book of Acts. And what Paul does is he reiterates that, and he says it's concentric, cir concentric circles. It starts with right here around you. So as the gospel goes out, we need to look around and go, who's next to us? Don't look at the person next to you, but maybe the person next to you needs to hear about Jesus. To see some husband like do this over his wife. Jerusalem is the next circle, Judea, and then to the Gentiles. Table Mountain Church thought in that in that context. We thought about our valley, and we thought about Pueblo, and then we thought about larger places, and then we really focused on unreached people groups around the world. And it, it just always went like that. As individuals, it started with your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you run into on a daily basis. That's always the pattern. And here's a map. There's four different color lines, and this shows you how obedient Paul was to this call. This is him circling really most of the known world and, and all the different places he went to. And what's interesting in this story, he's at Caesarea by the coast. He gets on a boat. It's the last time he steps foot on, into Israel. He's launched then up to Rome. And that's what obedience looks like. So why does this matter? Have you encountered Jesus? The great first question. Some people don't have a road light in the sky story. But have you encountered Jesus? For me, I was nine years old sitting on my bed and my mom went through this little book called The Four Spiritual Laws. And that was an encounter with Jesus. Nothing profound. Just my mom going through and going, do you understand that? Tell me what you think that means. And then I accepted Christ that Sunday evening. And then I came out. I remember the whole family, that my dad and my brothers, they're all eating pancakes or something. We always had breakfast food Sunday night. And, the, and my mom says, tell your brothers what you did. And I shared with them. Nothing profound, but it changed everything in my life. And then the next question is, if you have encountered Jesus, what is your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond? It's really easy to go, the church does this, the youth ministry does this, our missionaries do this, but how often do we go, I, this is me, I am called to be a missionary. I've said this many times, every believer is a church planner, every church is a church planning church. Every believer is a church. What does that look like? It means you're just building, constantly moving outward. What happens in our churches is we forget this and we start to become ingrowing. We get in our huddles and we forget the stories like the fact that the organ in the church was originally an outreach tool so people could come in and see this thing played. That Sunday school was started so that kids could learn to read. And then eventually it just becomes our thing. But the gospel is always going out. And then this final one, what is one step of obedience God has asked you to take? Maybe it's you just got to learn your neighbor's names. Beth and I are in the middle of this right now. Aaron and Beth and Daryl and Michelle and all these people that we see when we walk our crazy little coonhound penny. And we go out and we, a lot of times we stop and we talk. We're just getting to know them and to be real in their lives, and, and to enter into their lives, for them to enter in our lives, it takes time. And then I want you to try this. This is how I want to end. Write out your relationship match, map, pray, watch, and respond. 
There's a book called Pray and Watch by Neil Brower. He's a free church pastor. And our church took this to heart. And it has this little chart. And you go through and you write all your relationships. And it has stuff on there like, you know, who are people that you run into at the grocery store? Who are your neighbors? Who are people you like? Who are people you don't like? Who are people you want your kids to spend time with? Who are people you don't want your kids to spend time with? And it goes all the way through. And then what we would do as a church is every once in a while, it was our offering that morning, we would pray this prayer, God, draw the hearts of these people, turn them into kingdom workers, and then we just, people would just spout out names, first names, all over the congregation. And then for our baptism, which you got one coming up, in the, the mountains of Colorado, we had a big old horse trough, and every time someone was baptized, we gave them a sharpie, and they signed the date and their name on it. So our horse trough, little plastic horse trough, has names of people, all generations. Pray, watch, and respond. Discover those on the other side of your fence. Act as God moves. Who are the people? This is going out a little bit farther. Who are the people? Who go, I just I feel a little more uncomfortable when I'm around them. Different generation, different ethnicity. And then this last one, as God opens the doors. And, and by the way, if you pray this, and you're consistently building those relationships, God will give you opportunity. It always happens. The question is, are you going to be like Paul and be obedient? This is my desire for our district, for our churches, that we would think in this way, that we would always be thinking outward. We want to see new gospel communities around our district, around the nation, around the world. Everybody says the Northwest is tough. Everywhere I've lived, everybody says it's tough. (laughs) You live in Colorado, everybody says it's tough in Colorado. (laughs) It's just hard in Western culture. But if we love each other, we're obedient to God, and we're praying and watching and obedient to those conversations, God will bless that. I'm going to pray for you as a church. I think Derek's going to come up and pray in just a moment too. But God, let me just bring you this church, Faith in Dallas. Thank you for this congregation, for their love for you, for their faithfulness here in this community. I ask that you would give them opportunities that can only come from you as you draw the hearts of people. I pray for those in this room right now, they're struggling with, they they just don't know anybody who doesn't know you. Help them to step out of their comfort zone. Let the gospel would continue to go out. For those that are thinking about the next step, inviting people over to their house, give them courage. For those that need to go and experience ministry and mission in another culture. Give them the courage to go on that trip, to get engaged. For Eric and Judith Adin, as they work with the Mayumanda tribe, give them great fruit. We pray that that tribe would all come to know you. We know that we can trust you in this process. It's not really up to us. We're just obedient with with witnessing and, and sharing our faith. And the rest is up to you. Help us to not worry about the things we can't control. And I pray this in Christ's name.